everyone has a, a mental picture of what they want their life to look like. Uh, you know, even people who you know, aren't really all that driven, people who just, you know, are, look like they're just floating through life, like they still have a picture of what they want their life to look like. They're just trying to figure out how that image can fit to job and settling down and things like that sort. So even the people who are kind of floating, they kind of think, I want my life to maybe be adventurous, or I want my life to be uh, free from this or that, or I don't want to sit in a boring cubicle and do the same thing every day. I can't, my brain can't handle that. And, and yet, all of us have this picture in our life of what we think our life should look like, our future should be like. This is one of the reasons why that first year of marriage is so much fun for a lot of couples, because he's got a picture, she's got a picture, and we all just get married assuming that our spouse is going to have the same picture as we do, because they're perfect. They never do anything wrong. They're amazing and wonderful. Why wouldn't they have the same perfect picture of what our life together is going to be as we do? Um, you know, when Abby and I got married, she probably had a picture in her mind of me helping load and unload the dishwasher and do all the dishes, which I do. But she probably didn't have in her mind the fact that I gonna, was going to leave every cabinet door open when I was done, <laughs> which I also do. Uh, drives her nuts. She's like, why, come on, you, get, you did all the hard work. Why can't you just walk around and just da, 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 and shut all the cabinets? And it's like, I didn't even think about it. The job was done, the dishes were getting clean, and I was out. Like, that's just kind of how my brain works. But since I'm such an amazing husband, she rarely brings it up. Um, <laughs> another example, you don't have to laugh, that's just rude. Uh, another example of our differences is when I have a day off, I think... I'm going to lounge around, going to be lazy. I don't want any to-do list. I don't want a goal. I don't want to have ambition for my day off. I just want to just wake up and enjoy the day and do whatever kind of comes at me. Whereas Abby, she wakes up and shows up for a day off with a list of things to do. And when I'm sitting there on the couch and she's buzzing around doing this or that, it's like, man, just sit down. You're stressing me out. I'm trying to, like, enjoy my day off, and you're ruining it with all your things you're trying to do, and I just want her to, to just enjoy a day off, but that's not. Some of you, every day off is a chance to conquer the world, and it's like, that's not a day off. That's just different work. Like, I don't want to live that way. I can't live that way. Another example of where these worlds collide is around the holidays, Oh, man, some of you had the biggest fights of your marriage year one, Thanksgiving and Christmas, because you both thought, you're going to spend it with your mom. Well, you, it just ain't going to work sometimes, and you both had a, had a little bit of a knockdown drag out. And so holiday traditions can be a huge source of conflict as you fight to have your picture-perfect Christmas. Um, some families sleep in. How many of you are sleep in? Take it easy on Christmas. Some of you. How many of you are get up at the crack of dawn and make the most of every second of that special day? Yeah, right? Some of you are that way. Some of you are Christmas Eve present unwrappers. And some of you, if it's not done on Christmas morning, that's sacrilege. Like, doesn't the Bible say to open the presents on Christmas morning? Because that's Jesus' birthday, right? Like, but that's not in there. And so some of you, you've added elf on a shelf to your holiday tradition. The rest of us have decided that our kids make enough of a mess that we don't need an, an elf doing snow angels and powdered sugar in our kitchen. Like so, but no judgment. You're wrong, but no judgment. That's just how it is. And so, you know, that's, that's one of these big things that happens because we have a picture of what our future is going to be. Everybody just kind of instinctively does this. And then you get married or you start dating and you're trying to merge all this stuff together. And it's like, I have my picture and they have theirs, only theirs is wrong. 
So how do I make them fit according to my schedule? And what happens is a lot of us, as we have gone through life with this picture in our head, we've understood that it can't always be reality. And, and we've learned to adjust and let go of certain things that we thought were going to be a part of our life that just never materialized, jobs we didn't get, career paths we didn't follow. We've learned to adjust the picture in our head of what our future is going to be like. And we learn to appreciate the life that we have, the path that we're on. Um, but there will be times when some of us see that picture in our head and life starts to go a different direction. And we think, no, because my picture is without a doubt 100% the right future. It, it has to be what's in my head. There is nothing else that I will accept delivery on. And when you do that, when you become convinced that your picture of your future or your life is right, you will do almost anything that you can to bring that picture into reality. And when that happens, when you do anything to make, to shape your future or to shape the circumstances around you, and I mean anything, when you're willing to do anything to shape your situation around you into the picture in your head, there's a word we have for that, and we call it controlling. And some of you just like, because you've had people call you controlling, and you didn't really like it. And, and, and some of you were thinking, oh man, I'm glad my mother-in-law is here to hear this. I'm glad my husband is here to hear this because he's weird and he's got a lot of quirks and I'm just glad maybe he'll chill out a little bit after this sermon. Well, before you start throwing elbows and stuff, I just want us to think, what could this mean for me? Because I really do believe that all of us have certain areas of life where we get a little bit, you know, this is, it's going to be my way or else. We all kind of have tendencies or at least certain areas of that. Um, maybe, uh, I know guys, my dad was this way, you got a garage and every tool is exactly where it should be. And dad wrath will reign around the whole family if a kid goes and gets a wrench to adjust his bike and then gets excited that he's going to ride off with his friends and just drops the wrench in the yard and takes off. Because you get back and you walk in that garage. I don't, it's like my dad can smell it before he even opens the door. Something's not right. Something's not in the right place. And he'll look over and see that, miss, that hook, that empty space on the wall. And so you think, this is how it has to be. And that's okay. We all have our places like that. But sometimes it gets to be a little bit much. We, get, um, we start to want to control things that maybe aren't really ours to control. Or maybe areas of life that are even beyond our control... And we just refuse to accept that it's beyond our control. Uh, I read a story just this week of a lady who, wrote, who was asking for help, one of those advice columns. I don't even know why I read it, but it was a lady asking for help. She said, I love the beach. I don't live at the beach. We go, I go there as often as I can, but I don't, I don't go there. And so every year when I put up my Christmas tree for my family, I decorate it with a beach theme. And so her tree was covered with like blue lights and shells and uh, starfish and all these things had a, had a very beach theme for her tree and her mother-in-law hated it and her mother-in-law commented often that she did not think a beach themed Christmas tree represented the spirit of Christmas and so what her mother-in-law began to do was once grandkids came into the picture the mother-in-law every year for Christmas would buy her grandchildren ornaments knowing that her daughter-in-law would feel the pressure to put the ornaments on the tree, and so over time, the mother-in-law could decorate, redecorate the tree that wasn't even her tree. And it's like, that is, that's a bit 
much. And we all can probably think of situations like that where we have trouble letting go of control, whether it's the way a garage looks, whether it's the way we want our house to operate, whether it's you know, the, the husband or the wife that doesn't live according to the picture that you had in place. We all have trouble with certain things like that. Or maybe it's just where the direction of your life is going to go as a whole. And so today, we're going to talk about letting go of control. That's what we've been talking about this entire series, is letting go of things that really we're carrying in life that are really hindering us living maybe the, the life that God truly has for us. And again, you might be thinking, I'm glad someone is here to listen to this, or you might already have a, a picture in mind of somebody you're going to send a link of the message to tomorrow when it's up online or something like that. But I just want us to stop and think, what could this mean for me? And this is going to be really hard for us because if you tend to be this way and you acknowledge it and someone's told you about it, you probably have already have a little bit of a defense. You're saying, I'm not controlling I'm aggressively helpful. I'm not controlling. I'm just thoroughly organized, even on other people's behalf. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not controlling. I'm just helpful. And sometimes I have to force my help onto the people in my life who aren't as ambitious as I am. Because if they don't get my help, they're going to ruin their own lives. They're going to miss out on the best of the holidays. And so they are lucky that I'm here to inflict my help on them. And so most of us will say, I, again, I'm not that extreme, but I still think most of us have areas of our life where we struggle to let go of control. And, you know, I'm a pretty particular person in certain areas of my life. Don't say anything, please, Abby, no, no comments from my wife. But I can very easily slide from particular about certain things into controlling. Uh, one thing that's always been kind of my thing is, is cleaning. I, I, have a lower tolerance for how dirty and messy and cluttered our house can be. And I've always been this way, and it was, man, I, it was fine. When I started here 12 or so years ago, I lived by myself. I had no trouble keeping that house clean. I get married, still no trouble. And then you have kids, and it just ruins this picture of how pristine the house could be and how nice and clean and organized all the toys are. Because... Some of you, you had babies, and you got like little bins, in the, and all the toys are going to go in the bins when they're done playing with them. No, they're not. It's just not. <laughs> you know where they're going to go? Everywhere else. We, uh, we had a puzzle that James got from someone. It was a Thomas the Train puzzle. Just came in a nice little tin, little lunchbox-looking thing. Never once did I have all the pieces to that puzzle until he was done playing with it. One day, I was sitting on the floor in front of our TV, and I just... Caught the, something just caught my eye under the TV. Our TV, I mean, there's like this much clearance under the TV. And apparently, like the second he got that puzzle, he'd shoved a piece in under the, under the TV, didn't see it for like four years. Until one, and I found it, I was like, Abby, we have all the pieces. I was way happier than any human being should have been. But I put that puzzle together with him for years, and just that giant piece missing just like gnawed at my soul. And so... I'm a little particular about how our house should be and how life should be at home and things like that. And I've been trying lately to try to teach my kids how to clean, to give them some responsibility around the house. And it is almost painful for me to watch them do it because, well, they just do it wrong. <laughs> I try to explain how to do it, and they just they, they try to the best of their little ability, but they just don't do it right, at least not yet. And it bothers me, and I, there's been more than one time, I'm ashamed to say, where it was like, 
all right, go back and play. I'll finish up. Like, like I just want to, I can't watch you do it. I can't leave it this way. I have to do it the right way before I can move on with my life. And, and when I become overly controlling or when we become overly controlling, like I said, we try to control things really that aren't in our power to control or aren't our place to control. And so you, sometimes as your kids get older, you want to tr- control where they go, who they go with, how they drive there, what kind of grades they make even if it means you have to talk to their teacher regularly about how they're doing in school. Uh, I heard a story this week of a, uh, a mom, and somebody had a video of it. I don't know if the kid did the video of it, but, but he, he walks in, and you hear the mom say, uh, Buddy, mom's going to have to rewrite your paper. Why? She said, well, just listen to this opening sentence you had. He goes, I'm in junior high. I'm supposed to learn this stuff and do it for myself. And she was so worried. If you don't get good grades in junior high, you're not going to get good grades in high school. And then you're not going to get a good, into a good college. And then you're going to die poor and alone. And she was like, she couldn't even let him, a seventh grader or eighth grader, write his own term paper, book report, whatever it was. And, it's str- and, and, and some people, we struggle to let go of, of certain levels of control over things like that. Even how, um, how our kids uh, go to school, what major they have, who they marry, how many kids they have, how they raise their kids, and even how they decorate their Christmas tree. And let me just say this. If you're somebody who tends to lean more to the controlling side of things, I would almost guarantee that your spouse is not that way. Because two controlling people cannot coexist in the same house without a funeral happening very soon thereafter. <laughs> That's just the law of nature. And so you've probably talked to your spouse about how they chew, how they dress, where they leave their shoes, how they organized their drawers. One area that I'm proud to say wasn't my level of controlling, I, like I said, I lived in our house probably two years before Abby and I got married, and the first week after we got back from our honeymoon, she rearranged the entire kitchen because I, the way I did it wasn't good enough. And we also had to get new plates. I had perfectly fine plates. But you know, we had to get new plates, and that's fine because I'm particular about cleaning and certain other things. She has to put up with a lot more from me. But you've been on your spouse about how they squeeze the toothpaste tube, how much time they spend with their friends, the shows you don't like them watching on TV and all the other stuff. And now we live in this age of social media that's popped up in the last 10 years, and social media is a control freak's best friend because now you can control the image that other people see of your family. It's filtered. It's edited. It's color-corrected. And you put that out there, and people are going to look at your family and go, what a beautiful, perfectly well-mannered family. doesn't matter that it took you 30 attempts to get that picture of your family in front of the Christmas tree, and, and kids were crying halfway through, and so you had to take a break so their eyes weren't red in the pictures. And then by the time you were done, you were ready to get a divorce and let them have the kids. You were sick of all of them. <laughs> and, but yet, you edit it, you post it on picture, uh, online, and it looks beautiful. Hashtag blessed. And every, that's what everyone thinks, right? But the thing about this controlling desire, whether it's a strong desire in you or just something that pops up every once in a while, the thing about that is the desire to control is rooted ultimately in fear. It's ultimately rooted in a fear that your future, that your life, that someone else's life, somebody you love, that their life is not going to go the way that you planned it. It's fear of what people might think if they saw the other 29 pictures of your family. It's uh, what your fear of what your friends would think if they saw how your husband would dress if he was allowed to dress himself. 
It's fear that your kid's lack of drive and ambition will negatively affect their future. And the more afraid you become, the more you try to control the outcome. And the more you try to control every aspect of your life, the more exhausting it becomes and the more fearful you become. And it becomes this vicious cycle of fear and having a death grip on trying to lead your life a certain direction. And, and like I said, many of us have an area in our life where we are controlling. And we probably know that that tendency, if we let it have full reign, it's not healthy. We know that that leads us to do things, say things, and be a person that maybe we don't like, that, and, and that it leads us to have poor, more poor relationships, more struggling relationships. But yet, there's those moments when I just can't help but control by the thoughts and the what-ifs that maybe keep you up at night as you stare at the ceiling. And the desire to be in control, it will hurt your relationships, it will exhaust you, it will exhaust the people around you, it will frustrate the people in your life, and honestly, the more when you control, it does almost next to nothing to alleviate the problem or alleviate the fear you feel. And so if you are a person who tends to be controlling in a certain area, I, another thing I can almost guarantee you is that it's going to hinder your faith. Because I think we tend to think of like, oh, I have my faith life and I have everything else out there. No, it's, we're all, it's all just one big melting pot of a human being, and everything is connected. And, and flaws that exist in, in your life at work and at home, they all affect how you walk spiritually. And spiritually speaking, the stronger you are and the more faith and growth you have in that arena of life, the more it's going to affect how you live elsewhere. And if you're, again, a controlling person, I'm saying it's probably going to hinder your faith at some point because anytime God tries to nudge you in any direction— that's different than what you have pictured in your mind, you're going to say no. Anytime God is trying to push you beyond what you would do for yourself, you're going to resist. Anytime God wants to take you beyond your comfort zone into a, maybe a situation that's more painful and less, less of, that has more struggle than what you would ever do for yourself, we can't grow, we can't learn, we can't mature because we're resistant every step of the way. And when life eventually does toss a curveball your way, because that's how life works, you're never going to be able to trust God in the middle of that, accept what God is, is doing in your life in that season because you're too busy going, this isn't what I had planned. How do I get back to what I wanted? How do I get my life back to being what it's supposed to be? And so when you have a desire to control, if you're a Christian, I'm just going to break this open, that it reveals that you have a certain lack of trust in God over at least a certain area of your life. I'll tell you one thing. This, I didn't realize I didn't trust God in certain areas of my life until I have had things pop up in my life that were beyond my control. You know, my, my kids, not just their craziness, that does drive me nuts. I've told you before that here, just to, I'm, you know, I want to put all cards on the table here and just say I'm, I'm talking to myself as much as anyone. Like I like a day off that's nice and lazy, like, you know, my kids aren't that way. They don't give quiet, nice days off. It's, Dad, can we? Dad, let's do this. Dad, Dad, Dad. Or they're fighting with each other so much that I can't enjoy anything. And it's like just, uh, so that drives me nuts because I'm trying to, again, I want a certain picture of life. But one thing that came up uh, was when they just started, anytime they would start having like any health issue, it was like, I can't, I can't fix that. Like I'm not, I, I'm not one, a doctor, but two, I don't have the magic ability to, you know, ease my kid's breathing when, when James was two and they were like, you gotta, you know, give him a breathing treatment and then stay with him because when they're that little, sometimes, and they're having breathing trouble, sometimes they just stop breathing at night. Why would you tell me that? I didn't need to know that, doctor. 
I mean, I'm glad they did because then I got to sit up all night listening to him breathe and counting his breaths every minute. Don't freak out. That won't happen to you. Sorry. <laughs> Don't worry about that. But there were those moments where I started having tons of anxiety and tons of fear and this desire to control and grasping at anything I could because, you know, I, I didn't trust God with my kid's life. I didn't trust him with their health and with what he had for them. And, and so you might be all going, okay, where is this going with Christmas? Well, what's interesting is probably the greatest example of somebody who handles a curveball that's totally going to derail any picture they had of their life. It's right at the beginning of the Christmas story, and it's with Mary. Uh, God sends Mary, the mother of Jesus, the greatest curveball, and the curveball was named Jesus, by the way, and, and that totally changed her life in so many ways that we don't even understand because we're so used to reading the Christmas story and Mary was on a donkey, which she wasn't. That doesn't say that in the Bible. And she, you know, they had to sleep in the inn, but it was probably like a, we think of a nice barn because a lot of you have nice barns with heated floors or or a nice furnace where it's not cold. Like that's probably not what it was. In fact, it doesn't even say that there was a barn. It just says she laid him in a manger, a feeding trough because there was no room at the inn. And so we think, but we tell this nice story and we make the Christmas story so beautiful that we forget the impact of this young girl just uh, magically, you know, miraculously becoming pregnant, how much that would have changed her life. So let's read Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at, that, at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Everybody who ever met an angel in, in the Bible freaks out. That's very natural. It says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. That's often what they say first because everybody's freaking out. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his king, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son and is in the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. Now, if this happened today, it would be a curveball, but it wouldn't be that drastic of a curveball. Okay? It's not that shocking in our culture for someone who's young and unmarried to end up pregnant. They have a baby. Mom and dad usually help or they, they can give the baby up for adoption, but it doesn't, like, ruin their life. There's many moms who, are, who had kids young. Everybody grows up healthy. Mom can get a job. Nobody's, like, shaming her for, you know, Im- immorality or anything like that. But in the first century, this was absolutely, positively, the biggest scandal a young woman could get herself into. The way a normal Jewish girl would typically get married and have kids was her family would have uh, worked to set up a marriage with a young man in the area or a man in the area who, who could provide a good life for her. Because in that day and age, women couldn't typically own land, they couldn't typically have jobs to support themselves, and so the only hope for a, a woman in first century Israel was basically to have some guy around to take care of her, whether that was her dad 
or a husband or an older son, any one of whom could work a job and provide for her. But to be unmarried and, and have a baby was, I mean, I mean, absolutely, ridiculously scandalous. It was against the law in Israel, and the, the, uh, the punishment could often be death. And so a young woman without a husband to live, uh, to take care of her, and after her parents died, she would probably be left to either poverty, begging, and, or, or prostitution, one of those. And so Mary's parents had arranged for her to marry a carpenter named Joseph, and he would probably never be rich, but he would be a good man to provide for their daughter. And so that's kind of what Mary's future was supposed to look like. Get married, have some kids, have a nice quiet life in a small town in Israel, and raise a family. And then... The angel shows up and says, you're going to get pregnant before you even get married. And you'll notice she never has any real fear about that. She just says, how is this going to happen? Like, I'm no, you know, high school health teacher, but I know, I kind of know how this works, and I haven't done the thing that it takes to have a baby, so how, how is this going to work? And the angel just kind of says, God's going to, uh, to miraculously impregnate you, and he's going to be the son of God. But yet for a first century young Jewish woman, this was a, a future-ruining type of miracle. For all the, for all the language of, of blessing and you're favored, you found favor with God, this was something that could get her killed. It would forever make her uh, the, the source of whispers when people walked by. It would, people would either think she was crazy for the story she was going to tell about how she got pregnant, or they were going to think that she was just some easy girl who told a bunch of lies to try to cover up her sin. And so when we start to think about what Mary's actually receiving here from this news from the angel, it sounds absolutely terrifying. It's a complete change from the life that she was hoping for herself, the life she was planning on living for herself. And that nice, quiet life would be gone, and everywhere she went, she would have a reputation that preceded her. And, and on top of all that, I think of this, the pressure. Like, hey, Mary, you're going to have a baby, and it's going to be the Son of God. Good luck. Like, I feel weight of raising my kids, and they're just normal little humans. Like, hey, Mary, here's the one and only hope of the world. He's all yours. Don't screw it up. Like, I just, like, that just terrifies, that's a terrifying, terrifying thing. And so I think of all that Mary was being thrown at this moment, and yet, how does Mary respond? Not with fear that her, her life's trajectory is completely getting changed in this moment. Not with fear of what her reputation is going to be, but she just simply responds in utter courage and faithfulness, trusting God all the way through. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Meaning, my job as a human being is to serve God. I'm not here to serve myself. I'm not here to give myself a nice life. I'm not here to, to do whatever I got to do to give myself the life I was hoping for. No, my life is to be at the disposal, to be used by God however he sees fit. And then she says, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So her response to all this craziness is let it be. If that's what God wants, let it be. I don't know what this is going to do to my reputation. Let it be. I don't know if my family's ever going to speak to me again. Let it be. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get, to get married. I don't know if I'll end up destitute and begging on the side of the road while holding my newborn baby. But let it be. If it's what God wants, let it be. Mary has faith in this situation that God is going to take care of her. That God's 
will for her life and direction for her life is the best possible thing. And I, I can't imagine, even though it's not necessarily reflected here, she had to have felt some sense of fear, some sense of uncertainty, some sense of confusion. And yet, for many of us, those are the emotions that cause us to, to, to dra- grab a hold of things and, and try to control it because I don't know what's going to happen, so I better plan and organize and get a game plan so, so that this doesn't get away from me and so that I can produce a favorable outcome. But Mary doesn't try to control. She simply realizes that when God's in charge, she doesn't have to control. And if it's God's will, she's not going to beat that anyway. And Mary teaches us something that is incredibly powerful and something that is so beautifully pure that it helps us to understand why God chose her to be the mother of the Savior. And it's this. You don't always have the ability to control, but you always have the ability to trust. You see, a lot of the times when we're trying to control, we're, we're fighting something that's never going to happen. I mean, we're fighting against something that, that we're never going to be able to change. We're, we're pushing on a wall that's never going to move. And, and all we want in those moments is to be able to do something. And Mary shows us, yeah, the, the thing that we do have something that we can do. And the thing that we need to do is stop and trust. To, to, to stop our, and all of our fearful wringing of our hands and trying to do, think about all we have to do to, to, to make our life get it back on track. We have to stop and think, no, God is in control and I can trust him even when things get scary. And we are able to surrender the future to God when we trust him. We don't have to panic about what's out there, panic about what comes next, panic about the situation. If it's going to be good or bad for us, we can trust into his capable hands. And when you choose to trust your heavenly father, you're able to have hope that even when life throws you things that are painful and agonizing, you can trust him because he he loves you. He's been good to you while things were good. He's surely going to follow you and take care of you when things get grim. And the thing about trusting God is that it's not a one-time choice. Mary probably had to wake up every day and go tell her family. You know, one day she had to go tell her family. At some point she had to go tell Joseph, had to start telling her friends. And every day she probably had to think, oh gosh, I don't know how this is going to go. But I can trust God in this. I can trust him with this. Regardless of how it goes, I can trust him in this. And we have to speak to our fears in a sense and, and override them with what is the truth. The fear says, you've got to control, you've got to manipulate, you've got to go, you've got to do something. But trust says, no, I can rest that this situation is in God's ever-capable hands. It is a daily, daily choice to trust when life throws you what it wants. Every time your fears want to drive you to manipulate circumstances, you stop and you speak trust. You say, God, I'm scared and I don't like what's about to happen, but I trust you with whatever it's going to, ha- whatever's going to be, whatever lies ahead. I know I'm not going to go through it alone. And here's the beautiful part about all this. Um, for all the controlling tendencies that you and I have, we are not very successful at it. I mean, you are, you, you feel more fear then you have the ability to change the outcome. And, and you've made a lot of people mad, and you've, you know, sometimes at family gatherings, people just know what you're going to try to do. They know that you're going to come in and do things, and they just kind of say, oh, well, I guess that's just how they are. They're going to try to redecorate my Christmas tree this year, or whatever it might be. And people just kind of assume that that's how you're going to kind of run into their life, and it's usually that source of fear, and, and, and you're not succeeding in controlling. You're not succeeding in, in the meaningful ways of building better relationships and bringing your life in a better direction. And so the thing that is incredibly true for us that we often miss, and it's, and it's a beautiful truth, is that, sur- we, that more happens in our life when we surrender. Because, whoops, we say God can do way more 
through your trusting surrender than you could ever do through your control. God can lead your life in better directions. He can bring better outcomes when you surrender and you trust him than when you try to just pick, take your picture and run towards it without any regard. Uh, I've said this many times, but I never wanted to be here. I never wanted to be a minister. I was always that kid when, um, you know, my minister, my youth minister as a kid, he always asked people, hey, how many of you, how many of you think you might be interested in ministry? And people would, few would raise their hand. How many of you say you'll never be in ministry? Yeah, I'm me. And he said, you know, those that you just raised your hand, you won't go into ministry. And those of you that just said you don't want to be a minister, sorry, but that's what God's going to do in your life. He's like, I see it over and over again. And I remember saying, no, 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 not me. Because I didn't want to be up and talk in front of people. It's scary. That's the reason why I'm up here more than anybody else. It's, it's not because I'm the most qualified. It's just because nobody else wants to be up here. I still laugh. Um, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld who pointed out that the number one fear in the world is public speaking, and number two is death. You'd rather be in the coffin than the one delivering the eulogy. Like, how weird. Like, and so I didn't ever want it to be here. And yet, I felt so many times things pointing me to ministry. And I just, out of my fear, I said, no, I'm going to do what I had planned. I'm not going to, I'm going to ignore what God is trying to shove into my life, and I'm going to do my own thing. And after finally just, honestly, failing at trying to control the outcome, I finally surrendered and said, okay, God, if this is what you want to do, I guess we'll give it a shot. And my life has turned out infinitely better than what I would have ever imagined. And I don't mean that it's been pain-free and everything's gone perfectly right all the time or that I've always succeeded. I just meant that God has given me a more enriched future than what I had planned for myself. And I never thought that could be true. I thought a future that led me to a stage where I had to be scared talking in front of people, I thought that was failure. I thought that was destruction. And I didn't want that no matter what the cost. And yet here I am, and I do this every single week, and it's it's not by my skill or by my whatever, it's God's grace that he was willing to override my fear and my desire to control to lead me down a road that would be better for my life, a life of purpose and meaning, rather than one live for myself. Because I'll be honest with you, you know the only thing I really thought about when I was trying to pick my plan? What job gives me the most money? That's all I thought about. I thought about me what I could get for myself, and God kind of just took that out of my hands, and it's just amazing where he's led me in all of this, and, and it's, it's humbling, and it's an honor to say that, you know, failing in, control, in controlling my life was the best thing that ever happened to me, and, and so when you enter a situation in your life, whatever it might be, whether it's this major you know, those of you who are younger, you haven't set the course of your life yet, and you're going to have a picture, and you're going to figure out what it's going to be, and maybe God wants to take you somewhere else. You have the choice to surrender early and let the whole direction of your life be changed. Those of you who are older, I don't know what God might be trying to lead you towards. Some of us, one thing, another thing I like to control is where the money goes. I'm the nerdy budgeter in my family, and, and there's times where my wife, by the Holy Spirit of God, says we need to give more money away, and all I can say is, but it ruins the budget. That's uh, All the math adds up. And if you want to give more money, wait, the math's not going to add up as well. But who's, what do I do? I surrender to what I know is God's will and God's nudging in my life. There's so many little ways where God wants to disrupt our control and our picture for our good and his glory. 
but it takes us being willing to know that he can do more with our surrender, with our trust, than we could ever do with our control. So as you get to Christmas this week and you start to sit down with your family and you get a moment to yourself, I want you to spend a little bit of time thinking about the young Jewish girl who had her life turned upside down and still had the courage and the faith to say, let it be. And I want you to spend some time thinking about that baby that she was given. Because if God is going to be so caring about your future, that he was willing to step out of the perfection of heaven and into our broken and dirty world, painful world, and live a life and die on a cross, if he was willing to endure all of that for you, then he can be trusted with your future. So if Mary had the courage to, to say, let it be, and Jesus is the ultimate example of God saying, I've got you. I've got this. You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. You can trust me in every ounce of what comes next. And so as we come up on Christmas and maybe just after Christmas, when you can encounter those moments of you just, you feel that fear, you feel that desire to control, realize your God, your loving Heavenly Father can do way more with your trusting surrender than you could ever do with your control. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the, the hope that we have through you. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways that we are wanting to direct our life and guide our life. And, and sometimes, maybe, Father, you're, 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 you're tugging on someone's heart today so that you want them to stop trying to run their life and you want them to actually trust you with their, with their salvation and you want, to, you want them to trust you with, with their future and to put their, hand, their, their life into your hands today. I pray that you would let them understand that a future with you is better than a future that we're trying to be in control of. A future with you where we lose every ounce of what we thought our future was going to be is still better. And for the, then there's some of us in the room, Father, who have a lot of areas in our life where we like to be particular, we like to control, and yet our, our tendency to control is, is leading us, keeping us from, from serving you the way we should, from honoring you the way we should, and maybe blessing other people the way we should. And I just pray that you would, you would kind of tap us on the shoulder today and remind us, hey, this is a place where, where surrender is needed. Because you have called us to give you our entire lives, to trust you with every second of every day, every decision, to let the loving grace of Jesus shape and form every aspect of how we live. And we can't hold anything back. And yet many of us have tried, and it's, it's only been harmful. There's been nothing good coming out of our controlling tendencies. So help us, Father, to trust you and to use the coming of your Son into this world as evidence that you can be trusted, that he was willing to walk a human life with all the scrapes and bumps and bruises and tears and pain that come along with it. He was willing to die a human death worse than many of us will ever die, feel pain and loneliness far beyond what many of us will ever feel so that we could have salvation and hope and a restored relationship with you so that when you restore all of creation, Father, we'll get to enjoy it and have an unbroken relationship with you for all eternity. And if, if the work of Christ is not an example of of the fact that we can trust you, I don't know what is. So help us today, Father, to be people who trust. Help us to walk through Christmas knowing that, that we can trust you with every ounce of our lives because you are good and you can do more with our trust than we could ever do with our control. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.